0: Father in heaven, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, ask that you touch our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would draw us closer to you into a deeper fellowship, a greater love for you than than we can possibly imagine. Thank you, Father, so much. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So something happened just about uh, two months ago. Something changed in my family. We were... Uh, expecting my uh, my we're expecting a brand new niece Now I don't know how many of you you guys obviously have children you have children no children yet okay so we're expecting in my family a brand new baby and one night I got the call that the baby's probably coming tonight and I live on the way between where my father-in-law lives and where the baby is going to be born in Salinas so my father-in-law is on the way, he calls me, and he says, hey, you want to go up tonight? It was late at night. So I said, okay, why not? I could go up tonight. I've never been in the hospital when a family member's been born before. So I'm going to go. So we get in the car, we're driving up there together. So we get there, we walk into the room. and It was amazing to see all of the excitement in that room. Now, nobody has met this child yet. Nobody knows what she's going to be like. We know she has a name. Her name's Elsie. We don't know if she's going to be nice. We don't know if she's going to be a loving person. But everybody just is on the edge of their seat. They're wanting to know how Emily feels. They're wanting to know how things are going. Everybody's thinking about this child being born. So fast forward. The child's born that night and got to be there to see the child shortly after after Elsie was born. just What an incredible feeling to see that newborn baby. Uh, but, Then my wife and I had been all night, so we went back to their house to take a a brief nap before before I headed back home. And when we walked into the house, it was amazing, because I had been there just a month or so before, and we had torn the house apart. We were doing all sorts of remodeling and stuff, because there was a baby coming. And as we were doing that remodeling, they kept saying, "Okay, Zach, you go up and work in that bedroom there and work on this lamp up there and and these different things. I said, well, why do you want me to do that when there's not even a floor in the rest of the house? Shouldn't we work on that stuff first? They said, no, that is Elsie's room. We want that room to be perfectly ready for Elsie. And so we actually put letters up on the wall that said Elsie. And the crib was all there, and it was ready. And as I walked into the house, though, they had totally finished the house, at least from my perspective. It was ready. It was all clean. There was no, you know, like, dirty dishes in the sink. They were totally ready for Elsie to come. As I walked upstairs, there was that bedroom where Elsie was going to go. There's the crib there, the letters on the wall, everything ready. In fact, in the closet was all her little dresses, all the little clothes for her to wear. And in their bedroom, their bedroom, the bed was all made, all ready to go, and there was a little bassinet there already ready right by the bed just so that when they came home, they could put her in there. They already loved Elsie. They'd already provided everything for Elsie. And Elsie had done absolutely nothing for them. Elsie had only been a figment of their imagination so far. They they didn't even know what she was going to look like. And yet they loved Elsie. So you go back a few thousand years. Well, this actually isn't a few thousand years ago. That's that's little Elsie. And that was me holding her just a week or so ago. And to hold a baby in your arms didn't really matter to me much until I had family. I remember when my first nephew was born, and suddenly I was excited to hold a baby. Up until that point, you know, I think it's different for girls than for guys, but for me, it was the baby. But then when it's your family, to hold a baby does something for you. I want to look at a story in the Bible about somebody who was radically changed by holding a baby. That day changed his life forever. As he was there holding that child in his arms, it did something in his heart, and you guys who are parents might understand what it's like, and you who are kids can imagine what it was like to have your parents holding you. As you held that child in your arms, I imagine that you said, I'll do whatever it takes for this child. I'll, I will defend this child. I'm going to provide a home for this child. I will make sure that this child has a good life. I want to already maybe start a savings account for them, or, all types of things that you were doing for this child. Well, this man was thinking the same thing. As he looked at this child, he had witnessed children being born before. He was 65 years old at this point, but he himself had not had a child yet. Now, he understood what it was like to have a father. In fact, he understood what it was like to have a great-grandfather, and a great-great-grandfather, and a great-great-great-grandfather, and a great-great-great-great-grandfather. In fact, his great 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 grandfather was over 600 years old at the time. It was Enoch. Go with me to Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, where did I put my Bible? There it is. Genesis chapter 5, we pick up the story of Enoch, and we see a story that reveals the love of God in a person's life and what it can do. This comes in a chapter that's a really fascinating chapter, even though when you just read through it on Uh, cursory reading, it might seem a little boring. goes through who begot who, and we'll pick it up in verse 19. uh, Actually, verse 18. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years, and he begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah. Now, throughout the chapter, it's been going through step by step. So-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so begot, so-and-so. A similar pattern. And all of a sudden, the pattern breaks right here. It says, after he begot Methuselah, something changed. Something that wasn't that way before changed because he held Methuselah in his arms. Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. Enoch walked with God after having a child. Something radically shifted in his perspective about who God was that changed everything for him. And you know, if if I knew that Jesus was coming back this afternoon, it would be easy to walk with Jesus, wouldn't it? (laughs) If I knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, there's no problem in being faithful to Jesus. If I knew that Jesus was coming back at the end of this year there's still a lot of inspiration to walk with Jesus. But if I have 300 years ahead of me to walk with Jesus, what is my inspiration on a day-to-day basis to keep on walking with Jesus? What made that close connection for Enoch? I want to know why it was that Enoch experienced what he experienced. So. In the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, it says, And this holy walk was continued for 300 years. There are few Christians who would not be more earnest and devoted if they knew that they had but a short time to live and that the coming of Christ was about to take place. But Enoch's faith waxed the stronger. His love became more ardent with the lapse of centuries. The longer that time went on, the more exciting his experience with God became. Now, a lot of times we baptize people into the church, or people, we get baptized into the church, and there's kind of this expectation, well, yeah, they're on fire, they're excited about God because they just got baptized. And then a month or two later, well, you're still excited because you have that fresh testimony, but I've actually had people in my church tell people before, actually it was in the, the church I was in before, yeah, you just wait, you just wait until time goes on a little bit longer and you won't be so excited. Is that what we are destined to? Or can we have the experience of Enoch that the longer that time goes on, that even if Jesus doesn't come in my lifetime, and don't get me wrong, I want Jesus to come in my lifetime. I want the gospel to go to the world now so that Jesus can come tomorrow. But if he doesn't, will I have a satisfying, fulfilling walk with Jesus that means something that impacts the world Around me? Will it make a difference, my walk with Jesus, even if his coming is put off for a long time? Go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Keep your finger in Genesis chapter 5. We'll come back there. Hebrews chapter 11, another place where we read this story about Enoch. There's only a few verses about him in the entire Bible, and yet it's such a fascinating story. Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, verse. Five says, by faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken away, he had this testimony that he pleased God. What could be better than that? I mean, what's better than that moment in heaven that we look forward to when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. To enter into that moment has to be the most fulfilling thing ever, but it says that Enoch had that before he went to heaven. Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God, that he was walking with God. Verse 6 gives us a picture as to how that happened. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who do Diligently seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So Enoch pleased God, and he pleased God because of his faith that he had in his life. For he who comes to God must believe two things. One, that God exists. And two, that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Friends, these two things change absolutely everything in our walk with God. When we can grasp these two things, it's like Enoch. He had those 65 years, and he believed that God was. But I believe that when he held Methuselah in his arms, the next 300 years, he realized that God is good, that God is a rewarder of those who seek him, that God was holding him in his arms. It tells us a little bit more about that walk with him. Actually, before we, before we go there... Um, so I've been married for 10 years now, and my wife and I have this saying that the other day she was walking through the store and she saw it perfectly illustrated on this picture. And I'll put this picture up on the wall. You see the sign behind us that says, Better Together. Better Together. That's what we've come to realize in our experience of marriage, that the more that we are together, the better life is. We actually do ministry together all the time. We have the saying, actually I have this saying, I tell her, I will pay you not to get a job. Because it's so much fun to work together that I would do whatever it takes to make sure that we can be together as much as possible, doing ministry together as much as possible, which breaks my heart that she's not here, but I'm thankful that she can be with our church. But that's 10 years, almost 10 years, it'll be 10 years this December. On the other hand, I've had people come up to me and say, well that's great, you've Been married how long? Nine years? Just wait until you've been married 30 years. You're not going to feel that way anymore. In fact, I had a lady literally say this to me. She said, well, that's nice for you guys, but after 50 years, you kind of get tired of looking at the same person. Is that what we're doomed to in marriage? That my wife and I can expect that, that if time goes on long enough, that, yeah, we'll just get tired of looking at each other? Or is it possible that our marriage could keep getting better and better and better and more close? And I believe that it can because there is Mr. and Mrs. Bittar. So Mrs. and Mrs. Bittar lived in the United States. In 1932, uh, Mrs. Bittar, her name's Ann Bittar, wasn't Bittar at, the, at that time, I forget what her last name was, was engaged to another man. But she had grown up and known John Bittar, and she loved John Bittar, but there was kind of an arranged marriage going on where she was supposed to marry somebody else. So they eloped before that took place, 17 and 21 years old. This is 1932. Fast forward 85 years and they are still happily married. 101 and 105 years old, the oldest living married couple in the United States is my understanding. This couple still loves each other. Just look at what Mrs. Bittar said. There are so many things in a lifetime that can make you very, very happy and very, very sad. But if you can do it together, then it is happiness. It's happiness when you're together. And if somebody can say that after 85 years, I have hope for our marriage. And I believe that this is the testimony of the people in the Bible. Like You you read 1 John. You read about the the disciple John. He says, this is the testimony that we have, that we have faith fellowship with God. We have this closeness with God. He was just radiating this experience with Jesus. He was overflowing, bubbling with Jesus' love. That's the way that I believe Enoch walked with God. Conflict and Courage, page 29, says Enoch, we read, walked with God 300 years. That was a long time to be in communion with him. He communed with God because it was agreeable to him. It wasn't just because he knew that he needed that in order to to get to heaven. But he enjoyed it, it goes on to say, and he loved the society of God. He loved to be together with God. That was what thrilled his heart and his soul and his life. Jesus meant everything to Enoch. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 84, explains, I believe, a little bit of how that took place in his life. It says, the infinite unfathomable love of God through Christ became the subject of his meditations day and night. And with all the fervor of his soul he sought to reveal that love to the people among whom he dwelt. You go and read Jude and he, he talks about how Jesus is going to be coming back in the clouds and he says he's going to be revealed and he's going to come back even, he says, with wrath to those who are committing ungodly deeds. He foresaw the second coming and preached about the second coming, and he preached to a very wicked generation. The generation he was living in is just like the generation we're living in today. Sometimes we, we think that, you know, yeah, Enoch could do that, but today we have iPhones and we have all this the, the culture that is a little harder for us. But Enoch did it right before the flood. Methuselah died the day of the flood. And here you have a guy who walked with Jesus in a time when it was not easy. So, how did Enoch have that experience? How did he walk with him? It said that he, the infinite, unfathomable love of God, was his meditation day and night. He focused on the love of God, and that was what was so radically transforming for him. Another quote from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 85. Enoch was a man of strong and highly cultivated mind and extensive knowledge. He was honored with special revelations from God, yet being in constant communion with heaven, with a sense of the divine greatness and perfection ever before him, he was one of the humblest of men. So we have this seeing the divine, the the perfection of God, the love of God, constantly focusing on, meditating on the love of God, and this led him to be the most humble of people. Something else interesting, uh, Bible Commentary, Volume 5, page 1139, it says, Humility is an active principle, growing out of a thorough consciousness of God's great love. I believe that this is key to what Enoch experienced. This is why he had such a transformation when he recognized that God was his father, that just like he held Methuselah in his arms and cared for Methuselah, that God cared for him, and that changed everything for him. Humility is an active principle growing out of a thorough consciousness of God's great love. If only I had a constant, consistent understanding and consciousness of God's incredible great love. So let's look at a little picture of how Jesus ties in this very same thing. Go with me to Matthew, book of Matthew, where Jesus is with his disciples in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 has the Mount of Transfiguration. After they come down from the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus has revealed his glory, they come down the mountain and they see this demoniac child who is not able to be delivered by the disciples. And the disciples, after Jesus casts out the demon, they ask him, why couldn't we do it? He says, it's because of your lack of faith. It only comes out by prayer and fasting. And then we get an idea of what caused their lack of faith. Now remember, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who... Uh, for, for, what does it say in Hebrews eleven six? 6? He who comes to God must believe that he is, and that is he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So Jesus says, you guys don't have enough faith to cast out demons. And then he goes on to say this a little bit further down. If you go to chapter 18... It gives us a picture of why they were lacking in faith, I believe. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Where's their focus? It's not on the unfathomable love of God. It's not on who Jesus is, but it's on which one of us is going to be the greatest. It's on the pride in their own hearts. That's where their focus is. And then verse 2 says, Then Jesus called a little child to him, and set him in the midst of them. Now, let's let's jump over. Keep your finger here because we are actually going to come back to this. I know we didn't go back to Genesis five, but go go over to Mark chapter ten. So in Mark chapter ten, this this uh, same story. Sorry, back in in uh, chapter nine, Mark chapter nine and verse thirty-three. It's, it's the same story. But it gives us a little more detail about this child. In verse 33, it says, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. This is the reason for their lack of faith. They were focused on themselves. They were focused on how great they could become. It's exactly what Satan wants us to focus on. But then verse 35 says, And he he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If any of you desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then verse 36, this is the same exact story. Then he took a little child and set him, where? In the midst of them. The same thing that Matthew said. But then it adds something after that. Something that, that Matthew didn't note. And when he had taken him in his arms. So, as he's speaking to them, he takes this child, he picks up this child in his arms, and as he's holding this child in his arms, he tells them about the value of humility. Go back to chapter 18 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. Jesus takes that child, holds that child in his arms, and says this to them, verse 3 Assuredly, I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Where is the location of this little child at this point? In the arms of Jesus. Just resting in the arms of Jesus. He says, unless you become like this little child that I'm holding in my arms, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. You, you can't even think about going to heaven, let alone think about casting out demons. You need to recognize my love in your life to the place where you recognize that I'm holding you in my arms. So, go over to 1 Peter chapter 5. This whole thing about humility is so crucial. We're looking at how humility is an active principle growing out of a thorough consciousness of God's great love. 1 Peter chapter 5. Fascinating Text here, oh, sorry, 2 Peter chapter 5. No, we are in 1 Peter. I was in the wrong book. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with, what does it say? Humility. Humility. So wear humility like it's a garment every day. Now, what does this humility really look like? God resists the proud. This is a reasoning for being humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God resists. God puts stumbling blocks in the way of the proud. He stops the proud. He casts the proud out of heaven. But he gives grace to the humble. So what is this like? Verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourselves under the hand of God. Recognize that God is the one who cares for you. How do we know that? The next line says this. This is how we humble ourselves under the hand of God. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. When we take up the cares of life and we are bearing them ourselves, it's due to our pride. When we're anxious, it's due to the pride in our own heart. God longs for us to recognize his love, just like Enoch recognized as he held Methuselah in his arms and began to walk with God because he recognized that God just wants to hold us in his arms. He wants us to humble ourselves to be totally and radically dependent upon God for absolutely everything. There's a parallel verse to this, actually, in James chapter 4. Jump over to James chapter 4, verse 6, basically quotes the same exact thing. It says, and he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. When we draw close to God, he draws close to us. When we take out the stuff in our life that separates us from God, it enables us to have a greater trust. It leads us to a greater humility, a greater dependence upon God. When we recognize God's loving care in our life, it changes everything. When we recognize that God is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him, those who diligently seek Him, it changes everything. There's a, in the book Seps to Christ, page 85, it says, And God cares for everything and sustains everything that He has created. Each is tenderly watched by the Heavenly Father. No tears are shed that God does not notice. There's no smile that he does not mark. If we would but fully believe this, all undue anxieties would be dismissed. If we only fully believed how much God loves us. If we only fully believed that he cares about the details of our life. And I realized this just the other day. I woke up in the morning and I was like my first thoughts were, Lord, I'm sorry, and I don't even know what I was necessarily saying sorry for. And suddenly I felt like he was giving me this picture that he's smiling at me. And I thought, do I picture God in that way? A God that's looking down with love, that's smiling at me, that's wanting to hold me in his arms, that's wanting to care for every single detail of my life, and how would that transform how I live? How would that transform me to walk with God like Enoch did, to walk with Him in such a way that I please God, meaning I I, I walk in obedience to God, I would do that because I totally trust Him. When I got married, I remember vividly we got engaged at, um, well, that doesn't really matter, but we got engaged while we were still at PUC. And we knew that we were going to get married. We were halfway through the year and we were going to move in together. Now, in order to do that, it took some sacrifice. I ended up, I think it was that, at that time, selling my car that had been like my, my favorite car that I'd ever owned. I said, we can be a one-car family. It'll be okay. We can, we can downsize, and we were going to get a motorhome and do some traveling ministry together. I said, well, we could do that together, just, just so long as we can be together, because life is better together. But I remember going down to the football field, and one of my friends there said to me, you're going to get married? Do you realize you're going to have to take out the trash? It's like you're, you're going into a prison camp, man. You don't want to get married. There are so many people that have that perspective about marriage. I've heard it again and again from guys like, man, you don't want to get married. You're going to, you're going to just be a captive after that. I've even heard an older lady say, you know, when I got married, I knew it was for life. It was like a prison sentence. Like, Man, that's terrible. But how often do people picture like that their relationship with God? Either they avoid it because they think, man, I don't want that type of prison sentence my whole life, or they endure it because they say, I want the end result. But for Enoch, he knew that God was a rewarder, and that he pleased God even as he walked with them for 300 years and enjoyed being in God's presence. So, If we fully believe that God cared for everything, all undue anxieties would be dismissed. Steps to Christ, page 85, continues to say this. Our lives would not be so filled with disappointment as now. For everything, whether great or small, would be left in the hands of God, who is not perplexed by the multiplicity of cares or overwhelmed by their weight. We should then enjoy a rest of soul to which many have long been strangers. Friends, we need to learn to rest in the arms of Jesus. I need to learn that. You know, on a weekly basis, I'll literally be walking out of church, a bunch of things on my mind, thinking about board meeting, thinking about what the teachers we need to hire at our school, whatever it might be, and there's burdens on my mind. When I look up, though, sometimes it's late at night when I walk out of church, and I see the stars, and I realize that there is a loving Heavenly Father who just wants to hold me in his arms, to care for all of those details, absolutely every single detail it tells us, we can give them all to him. Casting all of our cares upon him is how we humble ourselves. That brings an incredible amount of peace. And when we have that, the world will want what we have. So, I want to look at something else here. In James chapter 4, if you still have that open, right before it goes into this about God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, it says something crucial. Verse 5 says, Or do you think the scripture says in vain, The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? How is it that we come to really understand and picture who God is? It comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit, it's kind of like a cycle. We can have more of the Holy Spirit as we humble ourselves, and seek the Holy Spirit, and, and allow ourselves to be emptied. But the more that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the more that we comprehend of God's love, which leads us to a deeper surrender, which leads us to more of the Holy Spirit, which leads us to a deeper surrender. So look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I love this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and, and verse 9. So this is a verse that you might know well, myself I knew it well for a while, but I'm realizing that it says something far more beautiful than I had first realized. First Corinthians two nine says, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What comes into your mind when you read that verse? Heaven. Exactly. Think about golden streets and mansions and and dolphins and all kinds of fun things in heaven. And and that's Definitely included here, because God has prepared all those things for for us. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back for you. But look at what the next verse says. Sometimes we we stop there, because we say, look at how wonderful heaven's going to be. Verse 10 says this, but God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. God wants for you and I to experience heaven now. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants us to be in the atmosphere of heaven. That's how Enoch walked with God. It was as if he was walking in the very presence of God. It goes on to say, For what man, uh, what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Without the Holy Spirit, the passage keeps on going into this. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't really grasp the incredible, unselfish, self-sacrificing love of God. We need the Holy Spirit. That's point A in our walk with Jesus, is to receive the Holy Spirit. And when we receive that, this tells us that we're going to experience things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. I love what it says in the book Desire of Ages. There was a time in my life where I was super stressed out. It was my first couple years in ministry, and I was just burdened because I felt like I had all these dreams and nothing good was coming of it, and I didn't feel like it was making a difference, the ministry I was doing. And I was so stressed out that I started reading through The Desire of Ages, and I read this chapter over and over again. It's the chapter The Invitation. I encourage you, if you feel stressed, you feel burdened, read that chapter. It's about Jesus' invitation to come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But the, the end of it ends like this. It's so beautiful. As through Jesus we enter into rest. Remember that rest in steps to Christ is that rest of knowing that he cares for every single detail of our life. As we in, through Jesus we enter into rest, heaven begins here. Heaven starts now. No wonder Enoch could walk with God for 300 years preaching about the second coming and be satisfied in God. Because he already was living in the atmosphere of heaven. We respond to his invitation, come learn of me. And in thus coming we begin the life eternal. Heaven is a ceaseless approaching to God through Christ. This is what heaven is. In my presence is fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what Psalm 1611 says. So then it goes on to say, the longer we are in the heaven of bliss, the more and still more of glory will be open to us. And the more we know of God, the more intense will be our happiness. As we walk with Jesus in this life, we may be filled with his love, satisfied with his presence. All that human nature can bear, we may receive here. You can experience heaven now. It goes on to say, but what is that compared to the the hereafter, to heaven? And it goes on to describe the beauties of heaven. But we can experience heaven now. As much as we could possibly experience of the joy, the happiness that comes from intimate communion with Jesus, we can have it now. I believe it comes as we truly humble ourselves, are filled with the Holy Spirit, Realize the loving care of God and rest like that child in the arms of Jesus, depending upon him for absolutely everything, depending upon him for our obedience in life, depending upon him for our problems in life, depending upon him for our dreams and our goals, depending upon him for reaching people for him, for taking the gospel to the world, when we have this radical dependence upon God because we recognize his incredible love. It changes everything for us. I want to experience that in a deeper and deeper way. How about you? In uh, the book Daughters of God, page 221, says this, Just repose in Jesus. Rest in Him as a tired child rests in the arms of its mother. The Lord pities you. He loves you. Only believe Him. Only trust Him realize whenever I'm anxious, whenever I'm upset about something, because I'm not really trusting, I've forgotten to rest in the arms of Jesus. Ellen White writes this interesting letter in this, the book, This Day with God, page 9. She's writing about the new year, and she says, A new year has opened upon us. Let it be a happy new year. Nestle in the sheltering arms of Jesus, and do not wrestle yourself out of his arms. That's the problem in our lives. Too often we wrestle ourselves out of his arms. We try to figure out how to do everything in our own strength. And because of that, we lose that picture of the amazing, beautiful love of Jesus that he cares for absolutely every detail of our lives. And it leads us to be unfaithful to him because we're doing it in our own strength. Or we don't really trust that the things he asks us to do, we say, well, that, that's not really important. If we really believed that Jesus is all that he says he is to us, then we would do anything he says. You know, my wife and I, there are things in my life that, that she asks me to do that I probably wouldn't do if it wasn't for her. She helps me make sure that I take plenty of showers. She makes sure there's a lot of good things in my life that I do because of my wife and I am grateful. I'm so happy to be together with her that it doesn't matter what she asks me to do. I trust her that she's not going to ask me anything that's going to be hurtful for me in my life. Because I know her. And it's the same way with Jesus. The more intimately we know him, the closer it becomes our fellowship and the more that we grow to trust him. Does anybody know who this guy is? This is a guy by the name of DL Moody. Now DL Moody was a shoe salesman. As a young man, he became a salesman and was working, I believe it was in his uncle's business. As he worked in his uncle's business, one day he was actually converted. And after learning about Jesus, he was so set on fire by the Gospel that he said, I've got to go tell the whole world. And he became a pastor. He began to preach. He began to fervently work in sharing with the world about the Gospel. But there was still something missing. He tells about one day where he was preaching and a guy came out after church and you know how the pastor will stand there at the back door shaking hands. The guy came past him, pointed out his finger at him and said, next time you speak, honor the Holy Spirit. He thought, what? He said, next time you speak, honor the Holy Spirit. He went home and he couldn't stop thinking about that. What did the guy mean? He began to realize He was dishonoring the Holy Spirit because he wasn't relying on the Holy Spirit in his ministry. He was relying on his talents, his ability to get things done, to preach. And then he had these two ladies. He had these two ladies who who came up to him, and they came to him in his meetings there. And they were coming up to him afterwards, and they said this to him. They said, we are praying for you. Well, actually, before that, sorry. So he's writing in his journal. He says, I remember two women who used to come to my meetings. When I began to preach, I could tell by the expression of their faces that they were praying for me. At the close, they would say to me, we have been praying for you. I said, why don't you pray for the people? They answered, you need power. (laughs) I need power? I said to myself, Why I thought I had power. I had the largest congregation in Chicago. There were some conversions at the time. I was, in a sense, satisfied. But right along, these two godly women kept praying for me. I asked them to come and talk with me. And we got down on our knees. They poured out their hearts and I, that I might receive the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And there came a great hunger in my soul. I knew not what it was. I began to cry as never before. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer if I could not have this power for service. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with the Holy Spirit. Then he tells the story about a day when he was in New York City. He says, I was crying all the time that God would fill me with this Holy Spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. He was experiencing as much as was possibly able, but with his human nature, like we read in that quote. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truth. And yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you would give me all the world. This is a man who went on to travel the world to preach to over 100 million people. They estimate, I don't know how they estimate this, that at least a million people were converted through his ministry, came to know Jesus. That wouldn't have taken place if he hadn't have recognized a need for something more, a need for something greater, if he hadn't have had that hunger for the Holy Spirit to come in and fill him in such a way that he recognized the love of God in his life. I want that. I want that power for service. I want what we read at the beginning, that the union between us and Christ is to be as much closer as we could possibly comprehend, and when we have that union, we have power. The Review and Herald, June 10, 1902, says this, It is not because of any restriction on God's part that the riches of his grace do not flow to men. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Sometimes we think of grace as only including mercy. But they're two different things. And sometimes do a study on grace. We don't have time to look at it right now, but it's a fascinating word that includes Paul saying, I am the least of all the saints, but this grace has been given to me that I could preach the Gentiles. And he said, I labored more than all of them in 1 Corinthians 15 by the grace of God that was in me. There's power in the grace of God. His gift is God-like, the quote goes on. He gave with a liberality that men do not appreciate because they do not love to receive. If all were willing to receive, all would be filled with the Spirit. By resting content with small blessings, we disqualify ourselves for receiving the Spirit in its unlimited fullness. We are too easily satisfied with a ripple on the surface when it is our privilege to expect the deep moving of the Spirit of God. Expecting little, we receive little. Review in Herald, June 10, 1902. I'm not OK with that. I don't know about you. <laughs> I'm not OK with this reality. I've seen it too much in my life. I expect too little of God. You know, Ephesians 3.20, go there really fast. It's a fascinating verse. Ephesians. 320, one that we know well, but I actually had somebody come up to me after a youth conference in Germany and tell me, I can't believe what you just preached. So uh, Ephesians 3, verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. So I preached about that, that that God wants to do greater things. And that's the principle you see in the Bible in Matthew or, or John chapter 1. When Jesus tells Nathanael that he saw him under the fig tree, and Nathanael says, what? How did you know that? He says, do you believe because of this? I'll show you greater things than these. That's That's a principle in the Bible that when we believe, that Jesus keeps showing us bigger and bigger things. But this guy came up to me and he said, well, that's what God could do, but how do you know that God will do that? I didn't have a good answer for him at that moment but I should have finished reading the verse. Because it goes on to say this, God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. What is the power that works in us? It's The Holy Spirit. It's the grace of God, the Holy Spirit in our hearts. When that power is in us, the more of that power that we have, the more that he's able to do above and beyond what we could ask or think. So this first session is really about expectations. It's really about the focus, the picture of what God wants to do in our hearts and in our lives. God's Amazing Grace, page 212, it says, The heart that has once tasted the love of Christ cries out continually for a deeper draft. And as you impart, you will receive in richer and more abundant measure. Every revelation of God to the soul increases the capacity to know and to love. The continual cry of the heart is more of thee ever the Spirit's answer is much more. I want that in my life that ever I'm just crying out for more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes when we ask. It's through prayer. Thank you for running the prayer room. There's so much power in prayer. It comes when we agree together in prayer. Jesus comes right into our midst. Prayer is so powerful. And that is how we're going to see that beautiful picture of love like Enoch did that led him to walk with God for 300 years. Final verse in Job. I love this verse in Job chapter 22. I believe that this is key to our experiencing surrender. Job chapter 22 in verse 25. Actually starting in verse 24. It says, then you will lay your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Yes, the Almighty will be your gold and your precious silver. You're going to treasure Jesus. You're going to treasure the Almighty. He will become your treasure, your gold and your silver. And then verse 26, for then you will have your delight in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. In my relationship with my wife, I'm happy to give up anything that enables us to have a closer walk, a closer relationship. In my relationship with Jesus, I want to more and more experience that where He is such a delight to me and I'm trusting that He's my loving Father holding me in in His arms, caring for every part of my life, that I will gladly surrender absolutely anything to Him. I remember when my wife and I got engaged, she came to my, uh, we, we came back, we were staying at my parents' house at the time, and she, she came to, to where my bedroom was, and she said, Zach, don't you think it's time? I said, well, yeah, it's time. We just got engaged. We're going to get married. She said, yeah. Don't you think it's time that you take that box out of your closet? What box? What are you talking about? Oh, that box. You mean the one I never opened? The one I, never, I never go back there in, in that part of the closet. I so, said, yeah, but do you really need it? We're going to get married. See, in the back of the closet, I had this little ammunition box that was stuffed full of letters and pictures from an old relationship. I didn't really care about it. For some reason, I was still hanging on to it. But the love that I had for Leah... Made it so easy to get rid of that on the spot. I believe that Jesus wants us to so delight in Him that it makes surrender something that, while it's the most difficult thing in the world, becomes the most joyful and the most peaceful thing ever. It becomes like in Matthew 13 44, where Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like the man who finds treasure in a field and when He finds that treasure, he buries it and then he goes and sells absolutely everything that he has and for joy over it, he sells all that he has and goes and buys that field. I believe Jesus wants us to have that experience. Let's just take some time, maybe just silent prayer time, just to ask that Jesus would fill us with more of his Holy Spirit because that's what we really need. We need to be filled with more of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, here we are. So often, Lord, we forget your incredible love for us, but I pray just now in the, the silence of, of this prayer time, as we cry out to you for more, a deeper revelation of your love through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would lead us to believe that you have things which I has not seen and ear has not heard, for us to walk with you here and now as we seek more of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you, Father. That's a prayer that you are longing to answer. Lead us to a thorough consciousness of your love that will lead us to a humble dependence upon you that will enable you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. We pray this because of Jesus and his infinite love for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse